One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, May 13th. Around the time of the Met Gala, fashion writer Amy O'Dell released her long-anticipated biography of the editor-in-chief of American Vogue and artistic director of Condé Nast, Anna Wintour. This week on the BOF podcast, I sit down with Amy to learn what it's like to put together a book like this, 
when the subject of your book and her coterie of friends and contacts are not willing to talk to you, at least at first. I started approaching people for interviews and I got so many no's. <laughs> Weeks would go by, it would just be no, 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 or well, I don't know, maybe if she says it's okay. And I didn't go to her and her team first because a lot of the people I approached said, oh, well, she's gonna shut this down. She's gonna use Condé Nast to shut this down. You're not gonna get anywhere. Here's Amy O'Dell on the BOF podcast. Amy, it's great to be in touch with you and to have a chance to talk to you. It's been a long time since you and I saw each other in person, way, way, way pre-pandemic, I suppose. But you've been very busy with this new book on Anna Wintour, which I understand is now a New York Times bestseller. So congratulations. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start by asking the question, why write this book? And why write this book now? Of all the people in the fashion industry, why was it that you chose to focus your journalistic skills on Anna Wintour? You know, there's I've read another biography about her. There's countless articles and interviews with her on the internet. Like, what was it that you were aiming to achieve with this book? Yeah, so Anna has been running Vogue for 34 years, since 1988. And that tenure is extraordinary, not just in fashion or in magazines, but broadly in the business world. There are not many people who stay at the top for that long. Getting to the top is one thing, staying there is another. Jeff Bezos, for instance, left Amazon after 27 years. And despite having this public position for so long, Anna Wintour is someone who has remained an enigma. And in Anna, the biography, I hope to peel back the curtain on who she is. And the book really is about her troubles and her triumphs. And I learned so many surprising things about her along the way. For instance, I was surprised to learn that she wants to be remembered for her philanthropic work, not for her magazine editing work. I was surprised to hear about her life at home with her family. One of her friends described her as a matriarch. I was surprised to hear her described as a dog person who absolutely loves her dogs and will take them out at two in the morning if she needs to. (laughs) So it was a fascinating, fascinating project for me to do over the course of around three years. Yeah, I think the thing I took away most from the book was in a way the humanization of someone that's been turned into an icon, you know, frozen into this image, partially created by the woman herself with the sunglasses and the bob and the perfectly coiffed, perfectly dressed, perfectly put together persona. But to see and hear about Anna Wintour, the human being, I think is interesting and it's challenging. How did you approach putting this book together and trying to achieve your goal of kind of peeling back the curtain on someone who has such a big media profile and who, as you say, remains an enigma. It was really, really hard every step of the way, particularly in the beginning. And I had doubts in the beginning about whether or not I would be able to even pull this off. I mean, this is my first biography. I'd never done anything like this before. And I started approaching people for interviews and I got so many no's. weeks would go by, it would just be no, 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 or well, I don't know, maybe if she says it's okay. And I didn't go to her and her team first, because 
a lot of the people I approached said, oh, well, she's going to shut this down. She's going to use Condé Nast to shut this down. You're not going to get anywhere. And then some other people said, I bet she'll help you. And she did end up helping me, but I slogged along for about a year and a half before that happened. And I interviewed around more than a hundred people. So when I kind of had my roadblock in the beginning with people saying, no, 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 I thought, okay, what can I do? How can I get to yes? And I went back, I decided to go to the beginning of her life and try to find people who could talk to me from that era. And that proved to be successful. And the reason I thought that might work is because I figured those people would have more distance from her today and might feel more comfortable helping me out. So that was a good strategy. And that's how I was able to make some progress. And I just sort of kept working my way forward in time, knowing that, yes, of course, she's going to find out about it. And I don't know what's going to happen at that point. But after they did find out about it, they, meaning her office, I spoke to her representative and the result of that conversation was they sent over a list of friends and colleagues for me to speak to. They said we're close to her. I talked to those people. I asked her to say, to approve other people talking to me. And she said yes to every single person I asked for, either because I knew they were very close to her and it just wouldn't happen otherwise, or because they had said, I I would like for her to say that it's okay. And some of the people who said, I would like for her to say it's okay. Like, I don't think they're in direct communication with her. They just felt like, you know, maybe they had worked for her. She'd given them a great job. You know, they felt like that was the right thing to do. And then writing it and putting it all together was so challenging because you've got all that reporting, all that research, as you know, and just, you know, combing through and making an outline, making a timeline, documenting all your sources. I have so many endnotes at the end because I had so much research and so many sources, all kinds of sources, like real estate documents that are public records, the interviews, newspaper articles, just all kinds of things. So it was hard every step of the way. Take me back to the time when her office contacted you because they found out about the book. Because, you know, in my dealings with high profile individuals, when they find out you're working on something, they kind of take two strategies. Because of course, in some way, they want to control the narrative. Sometimes they take the we're going to shut you down. We're going to send you a strong legal letter. We're going to make sure that this doesn't happen. And, you know, that can and cannot be successful. Other times what they try to do is feed you people who they know are going to paint the kind of picture that they want, or they would prefer to have painted. And, you know, the more of those people you talk to, the more real estate they end up taking in your book. And so they end up having, in a way, a voice in the book, even if, say, she didn't agree to speak to directly herself, she ends up having a way of influencing and shaping the narrative. Did you get the sense that there was any strategic thinking behind the way they engaged with you so they could kind of influence what was in the book? Well, Anna is brilliant in many ways, and she's incredibly savvy. So I'm sure that that's what they were thinking. But what I will say is that you read the book, it's not a puff piece, does not gloss over her mistakes. And the vast majority of the reporting didn't have anything to do with her. But of course, what happens that, you know, once you have that kind of a relationship where they're, you're talking to them and they're saying, sure, you can talk to this person, like other people who maybe were unsure, but who didn't ask for permission or whatever, like some of those people were more open to speaking. And to be honest with you, some of those people like who had hung up on me, but then I can go back, you know, after Anna's office got involved and say, well, you know, she's helping you know, you said no to me, but I'm asking again, then I would get them to talk to me. And like, they would fill in really crucial holes in the story because a biography, especially it's so 
Actually, I saw my editor recently and she said it's one of the most work intensive books that you can do because you've got to create someone's whole life story from interviews and reporting and public records. And it's really hard. So to have some of these people who knew things that maybe nobody else know, just even be able to tell you what happened was really valuable. And the book is written in an objective way. And I think that if people love Anna, like, why can't that be in the book? You know, because right. she has a lot of respect out there. She has a lot of admirers out there. She has people mm-hmm. who feel like the opposite as well. And both points of view are in the book. And my editors and I, we work to make the text objective so that the reader can make up their mind about her because she's someone who a lot of people are going to have preconceived notions about, especially, of course, because of The Devil Wears Prada, which is kind of an iconic movie, right? A camp classic, maybe at this point. So we felt that it was important to just give the reader the opportunity to take in the facts and make up their minds. So was there someone that you really wanted to speak to that just still shut you down, even after all of those other people agreed? You know, I could maybe only say people who are dead, like Cy Newhouse or something like that. Because if I right. if I start getting into the game of like who I didn't get, I, I don't want to reveal any of my background sources because I had a lot of background sources. So I fear if I give you any real names, <laughs> people might begin to play that game of who talked to her and who didn't. And ultimately, as you know, a journalist has to protect their sources. You know, I didn't quote any background sources on like gossip. I didn't quote anybody on gossip or negative judgments about Anna. You know what I mean? And that goes back to just keeping the tone really objective and not gossipy because as you know, as you know, well, she's the subject of gossip all the time. So I did not want the book to feel gossipy for that reason. Why do you think she didn't agree to talk to you? For a few reasons. One, she doesn't like to talk about herself. A lot of people told me that. And two, she's not someone who really likes to ruminate on the past. She's someone whose style is to keep moving forward. I have an example in the book where she says that she doesn't like throwback Thursday on the old style.com. I obviously that- paid close attention to that one because it referenced <laughs> my colleague, Tim Planks. So yeah. 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 So she, as I report in the book, she said that she thought that throwback Thursday was irrelevant. That's a very Anna thing to not want to be looking back into the past because she wants to keep moving forward. And that's her management style, which works well for a lot of people who've worked for her. Like, okay, we made a mistake or this didn't work out. It's not anybody's fault. We're just going to move on. So I think that's one reason just, you know, if she doesn't like throwback Thursday, how's she going to sit there and tell me all about her life going back to her childhood? (laughs) She's also private despite being in this public position. Like she's kept a lot out of the public eye and she hasn't done a lot even to change the narrative about her in the press. Really? Mm. Like, I think she could have done a lot more and, and she hasn't. And I mean, you just look at the rumors over the course of history about her, particularly about her leaving, which were false just about every time, as I report in the book, like, it doesn't even seem like she did a lot to stop those, you know? After all of the work that you've done to kind of understand Anna Winter, the icon, but also Anna Winter, the human, better for your readers, what do you think is the biggest misconception about her? What did you learn about her that, you know, earlier you talked about the things that surprised you, but what do you think is most misunderstood about her? So I thought, and I don't know if you can take yourself back and we're into 2018, (laughs) 
But I thought at that time she was losing power or had lost power. And I thought that partly because, look, business of fashion is a digital, I mean, I know you you have print too, but it's a digital publication. And that's kind of a go-to for a lot of people to read now, right? It's all online. You don't need Vogue anymore if you want to keep up with fashion. That was not the case for many years over the course of Anna's tenure. If you wanted to know what was going on in fashion in 1992, you had to pick up Vogue or you had to pick up a magazine like Vogue. This has not been the case for such a long time. You can look at business of fashion. You can look at TikTok. You can look at Instagram. So there was that. But then there was also, I just got the sense. And I guess because there were so many rumors in the press about her leaving and stuff like that. 2018, actually, there was a big story in the New York Post that she was going to leave Vogue around the time of her daughter's wedding. And I don't know if you remember this story, but I remember it vividly because it was trending on Twitter and a lot of fashion stories don't rise to the top like that, but it was a really big deal. And of course she didn't leave. She's still there. There's no indication she's going to be leaving anytime soon, but I just kind of had the impression that people were ready for her to move on and that her power had weakened. And after doing all this research, I came away with a different impression, which is that she still has her power. And that's because she has this network of people who really rely on her and who admire her, who seek her advice a lot. And I give examples in the book, for instance, Bradley Cooper sent her a script for A Star is Born before he had cast Lady Gaga to get her feedback. Hugh Jackman solicited her and her Vogue team's feedback on The Greatest Showman. (laughs) I did not realize that kind of thing was going on. I mean, I think people in the fashion industry generally understand that she is called upon when designers or when, excuse me, fashion houses have to hire designers. I think people in fashion understand that she's often called and she gives her advice. I didn't realize too that she was giving advice even on lower level designer appointments. Like for instance, Tori Birch said when they needed an accessories designer, they went to Anna and her team put together a list of names. So I was surprised to learn about all this stuff happening behind the scenes that you just don't really read about in the press. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, 
Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. What do you think is the ultimate source of that power. I mean, you say she has these relationships and this network, but why has that continued to remain relevant amid all the change that you just talked about? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, as you might imagine. And I'm actually really curious what you think about that question, what your answer would be. I can imagine if you're a business person and your expertise is not in design or the creative side of your company, If you could call anybody and get an opinion on who to hire, who would you call? And if you could call her, why wouldn't you? So there's just that very logical answer to that question. But then also, you know, some people talk to me about how the fashion industry has historically had a leader and probably many industries kind of have a leader, right? Like a North Star to whom everybody looks. And fashion, what I came to understand through my research is that that person has historically been the editor-in-chief of Vogue, you know, going all the way back to Edna Woolman Chase, who started at Vogue in 1895 and then became editor-in-chief and was editor-in-chief through World War I and World War II. And she has the longest tenure, actually, as editor-in-chief 38 years and as 34. She did the job till she was 75 years old, which is kind of fascinating. But for instance, with her, I think it was during World War One when the ateliers in Paris had to shut down, she organized a fashion show in New York, and that really changed things for the New York fashion industry. So you can see just in looking at the past editors-in-chief that they've had this sort of outsized influence and power. So a lot of it is grandfathered into the role, and the industry seems kind of okay with this being the way that it is. And I actually think that when Anna does leave, of course, she's going to have to eventually. She can't do the job forever. She's a human being. I think that the next person who takes her job is going to have also extraordinary power. But I'm curious if you agree with that or if you have a different take. Yeah, I think that certainly the role of editor-in-chief of American Vogue in particular, given the importance of the American market and perhaps the Western lens or Western gaze within which people like you and me tend to analyze and interpret things. I can see that, you know, we're in a very interesting moment right now because the Chinese market continues to grow in power and influence. 
But Chinese customers, Chinese editors, Chinese influencers, they're not even present at fashion weeks or fashion shows that we've had, you know, since some of the restrictions from the pandemic have subsided. And before you used to have people like Angelica Chung, who are also present there. And, you know, that has kind of further put the focus back on America and the U.S. fashion system as being kind of the center of power, when honestly, while the U.S. market is growing really quickly right now, and it's, you know, all executives are telling me, you know, they've never seen a performance like the one that they're having right now. You know, there's no doubt that that is being rebalanced in a way with the rise of the Chinese market. You know, I've spent quite a bit of time historically with Angelica Chung and the amount of influence and power that she had in the Chinese market. I mean, no one has that power now. And she's gone from Vogue. And one would argue that her replacement, Margaret Zhang, hasn't really taken on the same level of influence just because she's taken over the role of editor-in-chief. And what I think Angelica and Anna both have in common is not just an intuitive understanding and sensitivity for creative people and an ability to build relationships and trust and admiration with creative people, but also an ability to talk to business people. And within our industry, there's so few people who can bridge the business people and the creative people. Like you'll have very talented fashion editors who have like amazing relationships with all the designers, but you put them in front of a CEO and they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you could have like oh, the smartest business analyst who could like sit down with Marco Bizzari and give all of this advice about how to scale his business, but you put them in front of a designer and they lack the language and sophistication and cultural nuance to engage with creative people. And so what I think, you know, ultimately, I think for people like Angelica and Anna, like what, you know, in my interactions with them, what I think is so rare is their ability to engage with both groups of people. And there are so few people like that. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. She, Anna, speaking to Anna specifically, she is very good at working with creatives. She understands it. And I talk in the book about all those fashion editor jobs that she had where she was in the trenches, you know, before she became what she is today. And she really wanted to be that executive. She wanted to be sitting in the corner office managing the work. She didn't want to be in the trenches anymore. And a lot of creative people, they don't like that. They like being on the shoot. They like writing the copy. I've worked as an editor and a writer, and I always send back to writing because I love it. I like creating the content. She really wanted to manage it. And I I really do think that that is her strength, that she is very good at corporate politics, inside Conde Nast, outside as well. And she understands the creative process and she loves it. She loves creative talent, according to so many people I spoke to. Okay, so there's a couple of questions that your book did not answer for me. So I want to ask you those questions to see what your thoughts are. I mean, you mentioned, first of all, that, of course, at some point, Anna will leave, right? Why don't you think she's left already? Like what keeps Anna Wintour at Vogue? You know, because the smart people, I think, would say, leave when you're on top. Leave Mm -hmm. when you've climbed that mountain and you leave a legacy. And when you leave, you leave everything right on top. So Mm -hmm. why does she stay? She likes it. Mm. A lot of people said she likes the work. One person I spoke to used the word hungry. Like she runs at this job hard. I mean, I don't, I never got the sense that she's checked out, you know, a lot of executives who get to her position or, I mean, no one's gotten to her position, but executives who become so big and well-known like her, a lot of them, they kind of stop doing the work and they focus on things like self-promotion. 
that's not really her. Like she's still in the weeds with things. And that really suggests to me that she really likes it. She enjoys the work. And I think it might just be that simple. Yeah, I think it takes an exceptional amount of energy to continue to do that job, though. And I oh, wonder, without question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder, you know, you said, you know, that the previous editor stayed until she was 74 years old. I mean, the way that editor had to work and the way Anna Winter has to work, probably very different. I mean, you still see Anna at every fashion week. She's at every event. She's She responds to emails in like two minutes. You know, I wonder where she gets all that energy from. That I can't tell you. <laughs> that I can't tell you, but I think if you love what you do, and I, I suspect that you do love what you do, it yeah. energizes you. Yeah. yeah. And I think it really might just be that simple. And, you know, she's not someone who talks about herself, which is one reason writing a book on her is so, so challenging. But I asked her close friends, like, what is she going to do when she leaves? And they said, I got an answer from Anne McNally, who's a personal friend of hers. And she said she knows when she leaves Vogue, her life is going to be different. And all she has said about it is that maybe she'll get paid for all the advice she gives away instead of giving it away for free. People also think she's methodical. Like she has a reason for doing things. Even if people don't know what the reason is, they know if she's doing something and they're scratching their heads that she has a reason. And her friends did say they're certain that she has a plan for her exit, but she's just not talked about it. The other question that I had, Amy, was when she does leave, what did people say to you about succession planning? You said that the next editor-in-chief of U.S. Vogue will probably have a lot of power, just like, you know, Anna does now. Did you get any inkling of the people that are kind of lobbying for or jockeying for that role and who's in the running? So... My expertise based on my research, (laughs) I'm just looking at all of the editor-in-chief transitions in the history of American Vogue. It has always been someone who previously worked in a lower position. So they never took someone outside who had never had anything to do with Vogue. Before Anna was editor-in-chief of Vogue, this is actually my favorite part in the book, she was creative director of American Vogue in 1983 to 1985. So that was when she was working with Grace Mirabella. Yes. Grace Mirabella was the editor-in-chief of Vogue from 1971 to 1988. And she was put in the job to change the direction from what Deanna Vreeland had done and bring Vogue into the era of career women in the 70s. And she made it synonymous with American sportswear. And she was very successful. But in 1982, Alex Lieberman, who was, I believe his title was editorial director of Conde Nast. So he oversaw all the magazines, but he was deeply, deeply involved with Vogue. So Grace Mary Bella relied on him for all kinds of decision-making, you know, staffing, uh, photo shoots. Basically, he wasn't picking the clothes that they were photographing, but he kind of had a hand in every single other thing, is my impression. And he brought in Anna. And Anna, as I say in the book, you know, she's basically the number two. And then she gets promoted to editor-in-chief of British Vogue. She goes over there. That's where she works with Liz Tilberis and Grace Coddington. Then Condé Nast brings her back in 87 to run House and Garden. And then she went from that to an editor-in-chief of American Vogue. And so you're saying that whoever takes over from Anna is likely to have come up through the ranks of Condé Nast as well. I would be shocked if they picked someone who had never held any job at American Vogue. Do you have any It could be someone. 
I mean, I don't, I mean, the, it could be someone who they bring in like a year before Anna leaves. Like that's what happened with Deanna Freeland. She came in, I think around a year before she was promoted to editor in chief. And it was kind of the same thing. She came in, she drove the editor in chief, Jessica Davis crazy. And then she quote unquote retired. And then Deanna was editor in chief. And then Deanna was fired to make way for Grace Mirabella because Deanna's book was the circulation was suffering and the advertising dollars were also suffering. You know, the name that comes up a lot, as you well know, is Edward Edenful and consumers love what he's doing. He's created so many memorable covers and photo shoots for British Vogue. And his name has come up a lot in recent years as someone who could succeed Anna and he has worked under Anna. So there is that, but it could be someone else. I think it's just hard to say at this moment. And I guess the question is, will Anna appoint her successor? That's also not really typical. They get pushed out or they get fired. And this is another reason Anna is a great subject for a book because that never happened to her. (laughs) At least in 34 years, that hasn't happened to her. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I think if someone is brought in in a senior position at Vogue in the next five years, that would be very interesting because they could do it the way they did with um, Deanna Vreeland and Jessica Davis. Probably the most, I think, urgent crisis that she faced where, you know, I actually, I think a lot of people beyond just the gossip thought she would really end up leaving was during the pandemic and the racial justice movement where the proverbial shit really hit the fan. And, you know, all sorts of things came out about the culture at Connie Nass, some of the subjects they had covered at Vogue, how, you know, people of color, marginalized groups had been treated. How and why do you think she managed to make it through that period, which was, you know, so many editorial leaders had, you know, lost their jobs. This is my impression through all this reporting is she's someone who has the support of Condé Nast leadership, like all those businessmen that are really running the show there above and around her. My impression is that she has their respect and they rely on her. Yeah. But I mean, I was afraid too, that she was going to leave in 2020. There were rumors before that story came out in the New York Times. I think the one headline, can Anna Winter survive the social justice movement? That for some reason sparked all those rumors that she was going to be leaving or she was on the way out. And then of course it never happened. But yeah, I was very nervous that like, oh my God, if she leaves, I've got to really hurry up. Do you think that one of the reasons those businessmen, as you put it at Condé Nast, continue to support her is because American Vogue and Condé Nast in general without Anna Wintour is a very different kind of business. Like what is that company without her? And can it survive and thrive, you know, when she does leave? Yeah. I wrote about this in my Substack newsletter today, actually. Oh, you did? Um, okay. Yeah. Amyodal.substack.com. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the company is going to be okay. I really do. I think that the fashion industry is going to fall in line behind, because your question really is, Will the fashion industry fall in line behind the new editor of Vogue? Because it's the fashion industry that supports Condé Nast through ad money, right? Will they support a new editor of Vogue? I think that they will because history shows us in the past that is what they have done. And as I said, I think the industry likes having that leader, that North Star to whom they can look in matters of crisis or you know whatever it may be or for advice, whatever. And I do think that 
Conde Nast is going to have to obviously choose the right person and be very thoughtful about who they put in that job. But I do think that that person, I think that Anna can be succeeded. I really do. And I'm sure you know this as well, Imran, but it seems to me like a lot of designers, uh, people starting new labels, like they want to be in vogue. It still means something. Definitely. And that's not just because of Anna Wintour. I think that's all true, but I, I think the fashion industry and the media landscape and the way consumers and customers engage with fashion has changed so much. That once upon a time, Vogue was the only game in town and it just had outsized power. And there's no doubt that some of that influence and power will continue in the future. I just think it's going to be sliced up with you know Instagram and other outlets or other channels that give life to fashion because that's ultimately why people loved Vogue, right? Or why these, you know, some people still love Vogue because it animates and brings to life this industry and the creativity of this industry, the personalities that drive this industry, but you don't need a magazine to do that anymore. Right. And so it's going right. to be really, it's going to be really interesting to see in the coming decades, say when probably safe to say that in the next 10 years, that transition will happen. And in the meanwhile, the media landscape and the fashion industry continue to be disrupted by technology and new channels and all sorts of stuff. Well, I hope that we'll see your byline on BOF again now that the book is behind you and you have maybe a bit more time. It was a real pleasure catching up with you. Thank you for taking the time to share the backstory behind Anna, the biography. Thank you. And I will write for you any day, Imran. <laughs> all right. We'll speak soon. Thank you so much. The BOF Podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF Studio team. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. When I first started writing BOF, it was out of pure passion for this industry and with an eye to how the disruptive forces of digitization, globalization, and consumer shifts would change the way fashion works. 15 years later, we are well on our way to helping to define the fashion business of the future. As I travel the world, some of you ask me what's the best way to support BOF as we continue to act as your guide during these turbulent times. The best way to support BOF is to support our journalism by joining BOF Professional, the largest community of fashion professionals in the world. A BOF Professional membership gives you access to our agenda-setting insights and analysis, which you won't find anywhere else, plus the opportunity to learn from our talented team of correspondents and editors, as well as our wider network of the fashion industry's leading creatives, thinkers, and futurists. Follow the link in the episode notes to learn more. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.